Psalm 49 is entitled, For the Choir Director, A Psalm of the Sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me, even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. For he sees that even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. The inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names, but man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words. As sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. And their form shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Now, just at first listen, at first glance, this psalm sounds a bit like a diatribe against the rich and famous. He says in verse 6, he speaks in verse 6 of those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. And then he says in verses 11 and 12 that their inner thought is that their houses are forever, their dwelling places to all generations. They've called their lands after their own names. And man in his pomp will not endure. And then in verse 18 and 19, again, he talks about people who congratulate themselves and who do well for themselves and how they will eventually perish. It sounds, I say, like he is, is exclaiming against the rich and the famous. And he does have some hard things to say to them, to be sure. But he's not being negative for negativity's sake. He's not just trying to belittle wealthy people. In fact, I've entitled the message this morning, The Gospel, or The Good News, According to the Sons of Korah. You'll notice that the sons of Korah were listed in the title as the author or authors of this hymn. And I've called it the gospel according to the sons of Korah, just like we call it the gospel according to Matthew and the gospel according to Mark and the gospel according to Luke and the gospel according to John. Each of those books explains good news about Jesus to the people. And here we have the gospel according to the sons of Korah because the psalmist is doing just what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do. He's actually proclaiming good news to the rich and famous and to the rest of us as well. Notice that there are clear elements of the gospel message. We would say, what do we want to say to people to tell them how they can go to heaven, how they can be right with God? And we have these things in our mind from the scriptures that we have to share in order for someone to understand the gospel. I want you to see many of them are right here in this song. He tells them, verse 12, you're going to die. 
You cannot live forever. You're going to die. You need to think about that. He tells them in verses 7 and 8 what we would want to tell people. You can't save yourself. It doesn't matter how well you do. You cannot save yourself. And he tells them in verse 15, though you're going to die and though you cannot save yourself, there is someone who can redeem you from the pit. He's preaching the gospel to them. The psalmist is actually trying to give good news to these rich and famous people who are trusting in their own wealth. And more precisely than just preaching it to them, verse 4 tells us that he's singing it to them. He's expressing this riddle on his heart. He wants to give good news to us and to the rich and famous, and some of us may fit at least into the well-off category, if not the fame category. And before he can preach or sing good news, just as before we can tell someone good news, they have to understand the bad news. And this psalm gives that as well. This isn't actually the setting in which this psalm was written, but you could almost imagine the psalmist being invited to a gala where lots of these rich and famous people would be, talking about their their land that's named after them and their houses and, and all of these things. And this is a conversation that's going on. And he's invited to come and speak. Really, actually, he's come, he's invited to come and do the music for this party. And the people expect him perhaps to, to get up and sing some hits by Sinatra or someone like that. To get up and sing, I did it my way. And so they're all happy and he's about to sing. And he gets up and instead of singing, I did it my way, he gets up and says, if you do it your way, you're going to die. And if I do it my way, I'm going to die. It's quite unexpected, his message to the rich and famous. And it's an important lesson for us. Before we actually look at what he says, it's an important lesson just to notice that he says it. Some of us, if we were invited to speak to guests at such an event, would actually want to cater to them and schmooze them. And this is the way that we share the gospel sometimes. I say we just in general, Christians in general sometimes. They'll they'll speak to a gathering of political leaders or a gathering of businessmen at a luncheon. And instead of telling them, if you trust in your political power and you trust in your business savvy, you're going to die just like the bums that are out on the street. Instead of telling them that, people are tempted to say, well, look at all you men of influence. Look at all these suits in this room. You all have such power in this country. What would it be like if you would just yield yourselves to God? What good God could do through you? And that may be true in a sense. But the psalmist says before they'll ever understand the good news about what God might do through them, they have to understand the bad news. And so the psalmist doesn't say, men of influence, look what God could do through you. He says, listen, your influence is going to get you nowhere with God. Your money's going to get you nowhere with God. Unless you repent, in fact, you're going to die, verse 12, just like the beasts of the earth. He says to them, you're driving down the road and you see a dead possum on the side of the road, and that's going to happen to you someday. That's where you're going to be. Maybe not in that place, but in that condition. It's quite amazing, isn't it? We're tempted when we're sharing the gospel with someone to kind of of cater it to make them feel better about themselves and feel like God might really need them. And that's not what he does. He actually says your wealth is ultimately nothing, verse 6. And it certainly can't get you into heaven, verse 7. So the lesson is, We simply mustn't shy away from telling people like it is. doesn't mean we have to be obnoxious. doesn't mean we have to be in your face. But we mustn't try to cater to people when we share the gospel with them. 
We may tailor the message to the group we're addressing, but by tailoring it, we're not doing so by way of schmoozing, but we tailor it to the particular sins of the people that we're addressing, whether they're wealthy or whether they're poor or whether they're youth or whether they're seniors, whatever it may be. Wealthy people, your wealth cannot get you into heaven. Don't trust in your wealth. Poor people, you're tempted to think that just because you've had it hard in this life that that means that everything's going to be okay in the afterlife. And it's not so if you don't turn from your sins. Young people, you think you're going to live forever, but you're going to die. Old people, you're tempted to be bitter, and God hates that, and you need to turn from it, whatever it may be. That's how we tailor the message, and that's what the psalmist is doing here. Without being obnoxious or condescending, he's addressing a particular group of people. He's pointing out the sins that are peculiar to that group of people and to their social strata. He's pulling the rug out from under all of their false hopes, and he's urging them to turn to God instead of trusting in themselves. And whoever the person is that we may speak to, that's how we must share the gospel. We have to pull rugs kindly, gently, but we pull rugs out from under people so that they don't hope in themselves or hope in their denomination or hope in their church affiliation, but that they hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's gospel preaching. And that's what the psalmist is engaging in here in this song. And I want you to see four aspects of the gospel that he's going to point out to his listeners and therefore point out to us. The first is this. The first is the width of the gospel. The width of the gospel. Listen again to verses 1 and 2. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. Low, high, rich, poor, all inhabitants of the world. He says, this message is for you. That's the width of the gospel. It's for all inhabitants of the world. It's for all peoples, and it must be preached to all inhabitants of the world and all peoples. Now, in the context of Psalm 49, which is mainly aimed at the rich and famous, the psalmist's main idea in verses 1 and 2 may have been to say, look, you who are high and rich, you're not exempt from this message any more than those who are low and poor. He may be trying to say, listen, you're not who you think you are. You're going to die just like the poor man. You're in the very same boat as him. And so he may be bringing low and high together and rich and poor together to make a point to the rich to say, you're not exempt from this message and they're not excluded. So he's making a direct point to the rich people when he talks about everybody. It's not just you fancy people. It's everybody. But that's not all he has in mind, truly. Surely we can read these two verses simply in a general sense. In other words, even if we weren't rich, even if we were the low and the poor, we could gain hope here, couldn't we? Even though he's including the, the poor to make the rich realize that they're not as great as they think they are, he's still including the poor and all the inhabitants of the world. And so this message, he's saying, is for rich Poor, Chinese, Swedish, Hindu, Muslim, churchgoer, non-churchgoer. No one is excluded from a need for forgiveness. No one is excluded from a need to be ransomed, to be redeemed, to have his soul saved by God. No one is excluded from the gospel message, the psalmist is saying. And the reason why no one's excluded is because Romans 3:10, there is none righteous, not even One, the reason no one's excluded from this need is because all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and fall short of the glory of God. 
Indeed, Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Solomon there says, There is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. And what's more, Psalm 49.7 here tells us that no man by any means can redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. There's a width in our need for the gospel. All of us have sinned. None of us can save ourselves. And so we all need this message. Low, high, rich, poor, all inhabitants of the world. And there's also a width, a corresponding width in God's offer of the gospel. He says, hear this, verse 1, all peoples. Give ear all inhabitants of the world. Everyone, he says, needs to hear what I'm about to say. He gears the message mainly to the rich and famous. He talks specifically to them in a number of places, but the message is for everyone who will listen, he says. And that's the gospel, isn't it? The message of the gospel is for anyone who will hear and believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And Romans 10, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Jesus says in John 6 that he who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. The gospel is wide in the sense that everyone needs it and the gospel is wide in the sense that everyone is offered this opportunity to believe on Jesus and be saved. So then what should we take from Psalm 49, 1 through 2 this morning? Well, first is simply that no one in this room is excluded. No one in this room is without a need for forgiveness. And no one in this room this morning is without an offer of forgiveness. God is here opening His Word to you, offering you redemption. No one in this room has sinned his or her way past the point of no return. No one in this room has outsinned God's grace. No one in this room has worn God's patience so thin that He cannot forgive you. I asked you a few weeks ago if you ever say to yourself, you keep coming to God again and again with the same nonsense, the same confessions, the same ridiculous behavior over and over and over again. You're way past 70 times 7. Don't you think that God is sick and tired of hearing your garbage by now? Do you ever say that to yourself or think that? If you ever think that, remember John 6:37. He who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Remember Psalm 49. Hear all inhabitants of the world. He doesn't put any clauses to say all people who haven't sinned really badly. Everyone here, no one in this room is excluded from the good news if you will only come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Secondly, we should say that no one in any room this morning is excluded from the good news. All inhabitants of the world, he says, whoever believes. No one in any room is excluded if they will believe. The people who are in a ballroom today, rich people who think they don't need God, people who, verse 6, are trusting in their own wealth, The message is the same for them as it is for you. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The people who are in their bedroom this morning, lazing around and sleeping through church again, the message is the same for them as it is for you. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The teachers who are in the classroom 
this week teaching college and high school students to scoff at the teachings of the Bible. The offer is the same for them as it is for you. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Those men who are sitting in the bar room this morning, drunk out of their minds, the message is the same for them as it is for you. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The people in the hospital room this morning, dying of homosexually contracted AIDS, have the same offer that you do. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The men in a hotel room plotting a terrorist attack against the United States have the same offer as you do. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that the gospel is open to all of those people? That's the width of the gospel. Do you believe in it? And will you welcome those kind of people? And will you go to those kind of people and share Jesus with them that they might turn and might repent and might be saved? And more specifically this morning, who is it in particular in your life who needs to hear the good news from you? Who is it who needs to understand the breadth of the gospel and that they can come as well and needs to hear it from your lips? Man in his pomp, verse 20, yet without understanding is like the beasts that perish. And yet God has so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is the width of the gospel. Secondly, I want you to notice the cost of the gospel in verses 5 through 9. The cost of the gospel. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever that he should live on eternally that he should not undergo decay. The psalmist is saying, do you really want to trust in your bank account? Really? Verse 6. Material ease, and nearly all of us have it in this country, material ease can make you feel like you're going to live on eternally. Verse 9. Not literally. And he's not saying literally that you couldn't live on for eternity. He's just saying your money is not going to make you live forever. And yet money and material ease makes you begin to subconsciously live that way. Live as though you're going to live forever. You trust in your money. You rely upon your money. It can get you what you need. It can get you the health care you need. And everything's going to be fine. And money and material ease can make us forget that death is just around the corner. No matter how much health care we may have. Death is just around the corner for us all. But when things are too good here and now, it's very difficult to begin worrying about there and then. I just ask you if that ever happens to you. Things are good here and now. And so you don't think about there and then. Does that happen to you? Forget that you're going to die. Forget about eternal things. Just get caught up in the things of this life. Don't trust your money, the psalmist says. Don't let it trick you. Don't let it make you short-sighted. Don't let it make you feel like and live like everything's going to be fine and you've got a long time yet. It may not be so. And there's another reason why we shouldn't trust in money. And that is because though your money may buy a lot of things, it cannot, verse 7, buy you out of your sins. And it cannot buy your brother or sister out of his or her sins. 
your money can get you in a lot of places, but verse 7 reminds you that it cannot get you into heaven. cannot buy your way into eternal life. The redemption of a soul, verse 8, is far too costly. So don't trust in your riches. You need something far more valuable than gold and insurance and a house that's appreciating instead of depreciating in value. You need something far more costly to redeem your soul, to forgive your sins, to buy you out of sin slavery, and thank God that He's provided it. The psalmist tells us what won't get us into heaven, what can't buy our ticket to eternity, but First Peter chapter 1 tells us what can. He says, you are not redeemed by perishable things such as silver and gold. You weren't redeemed in Psalm 49.7. You're redeemed with precious blood, he says as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Don't trust in your money. It will not follow you and it cannot get you into heaven. Now read verses 7 and 8a again with me and then we'll make a couple of application points. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him for the redemption of his soul is costly. Just a couple of notes, practical things. You can remember these verses when you talk with Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus was really God made flesh. They believe he was made flesh. They believe he was a man, a great man, in fact, the greatest man, in fact. But still, they believe he was just a mere man, not the God man that the New Testament tells us he is. And yet, they also want to maintain that there's some significance in his death. That when he went to the cross, Jesus somehow did really die for our sins. But if Jesus is a mere man, no matter how great of a man he may be, we're in deep trouble. Because no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly. No Mere man can have any effect on our eternal destiny. Not me, not you, and not a Jesus who is merely a man. If Jesus is not the God-man, the gospel goes away. That's one application point. The second is simply to notice that verses 7 and 8 are in the Old Testament. Brilliant, you say. I'm glad we... We give you a weekly salary to figure that out. Psalm 49, 7, and 8 are in the Old Testament. But it is important to notice that because some of us may have falsely imbibed the idea that in the Old Testament people were saved by their works. That in the Old Testament perhaps forgiveness of sin was paid for by their obedience or by their offerings. But according to verses 7 and 8, that simply cannot be. No one was ever redeemed by obeying or giving silver. That's what he says. You can't redeem your brother. You can't redeem yourself. It's far too costly for anything that you can do. And this is in the Old Testament. Even the goats and the lambs that they were giving as ransom payments weren't actually payments. They were symbols of the payment that God himself was going to make. Verse 15. The goats and the lambs weren't actually ransom prices that they were paying for one another. They were symbols of the ransom price that God was going to pay. They were symbols of the Lamb of God that was going to take away the sins of the world. 
So verses 7 and 8 remind us that the Old Testament was not a system of working your way to God or paying your way to God by making the right offerings. The people were to rely, verse 8a, on what God and God alone could do. They didn't know all the details about how God was going to redeem them. But verse 15 says they knew, those who truly believed, they knew that it would be God and not themselves who would save them. But that brings me to ask you, what are you relying upon? The Old Testament believers, if they were truly believers, weren't relying upon themselves. But what about you? Has the relative ease of American life made you forget that you're not going to live on eternally? Has the relative ease of American life distracted you from thinking serious thoughts about eternity and where you're going to spend it? For some of us it has. It's easy just to go Monday through Saturday and things go well and everything's fine and we forget to call out to God and realize how needy we are. And some of us, perhaps, have even begun to rely upon our wealth. Maybe not our material wealth, but the wealth of our good works. I mean, I I tithe. I pay tithes of all I get. I'm here. I do the stuff. I serve. I'm going to be here five nights this week at Vacation Bible School. Surely everything's fine with me. Well, I hope it is, but it's not fine with you because you're doing those things. For the redemption of a soul is far too costly to be paid back by serving at Vacation Bible School or giving your tithes. You need precious blood of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So are you trusting in the blood of Christ or are you trusting in yourself? The redemption of a soul is costly. Only Jesus can pay. That's the cost of the gospel, number two. The width of the gospel, the cost of the gospel. Thirdly, our need for the gospel. Our need for the gospel. And you'll see this. We're not going to read them all, but you can see this in verses 10 through 12, and you'll see it again in verses 16 through 20. The psalmist says, as we just finished reading, no man can by any means redeem his brother. We got that. We can't redeem our brothers. We can't ransom our brothers. But the question is, why do we need a ransom in the first place? A ransom from what? Well, there are two answers in this psalm. Really, one answer with two layers. You need a ransom. You need the gospel. You need good news this morning because, A, you're going to die. That's what he's saying in verses 10 through 12 and 16 through 20. You are going to die. Verse 10, even wise men die. The stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. You, where you're sitting this morning, and I standing here, are on a one-way journey that's going to end in death. You are going to die. Now, I know I'm not saying anything cutting edge. I know I'm not saying anything that you don't know or believe. But it's a good reminder, isn't it? It's a good reminder to say to yourself, I will not live forever. Do you ever say that to yourself? Do you ever contemplate your own mortality? Do you ever think about the fact that today could be your last day? You don't know when an aneurysm may strike or when a car may strike your car. You don't know. Do you ever stand over a casket 
looking at the person's body laying there and say to yourself, that's going to be me sooner than I think. It's going to be my co-workers and it's going to be my family members as well. Is it morbid to contemplate your own death? can be. You can think about your own death so much that it paralyzes you and you don't live your life. You can think about your own death so much that you become self-absorbed and just try to do everything in the world to preserve yourself. So it can be morbid and sinful and unhelpful to contemplate your own death, but it can also be very beneficial to remind yourself consistently that, verse 10, even wise men die. The senseless and the stupid alike perish. And so will I. And when he says even wise men die, the senseless and the stupid alike perish, what he's saying, in other words, is it's not just the people you expect to die who actually do so. In other words, it's not just the the stupid, senseless person, and you look at the way he lives, you look at his recklessness with his body, you look at his recklessness with his mouth, or whatever it may be, and you say, he's going to get himself killed someday. That's true. And we all know people like that. But the psalmist is saying, it's not just the people you expect who are going to die. Or we could add, it's not just older people who are going to die. It's not just cancer patients who are going to die. It's not just soldiers who are going to die. Even wise men die. Even people who are preparing well, even people who go to the gym every day, even people who care for their bodies and drive carefully and are ready for heaven, even those people are going to die. 28-year-old mothers of two die. Middle-aged fathers who are completely healthy and well have accidents and die. People who just two or three weeks prior had been given a clean bill of health by the oncologist, die. And you and I are going to die sooner than we probably think. And then the question is this. Just because our lungs stop and our brains shut down, does that mean our souls go into oblivion? When you look at someone in the casket sometime, ask yourself, just because his mouth isn't moving and his lungs aren't breathing and his brain isn't any longer sending out waves to the rest of his body, does that mean his personality is no more? Does that mean his consciousness is no more? Does that mean his laughter is no more? Does his soul cease to exist when his lungs and brain cease to function? And I think anyone who's just thinking about life with a clear head has to say, surely... It can't be. And we know from the scriptures that it can't be, don't we? We're not merely biological machines. The end is not really the end. We're not going to die and then cease to exist forever. We are immortal souls. The body is going to die. The soul is going to live somewhere. And all this is under the heading of our need for the gospel. If our bodies are going to die and yet our souls are going to live somewhere, then we need some good news about where somewhere might be when our lungs stop and our brains shut down and our eyes close for the final time. You and I, because we're going to die, have a need for the gospel. We have a need for it. And we also have a need because you and I are going to die as sinners. We're going to die as sinners. 
Now listen in verses 12 and 20 how the psalmist describes man. He said some specific things about wealthy men, but in verses 12 and 20, he's just going to describe man in general. Listen, 12, man in his pomp will not endure. He's like the beast that perishes. Verse 20, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. In our university library, At Ole Miss, one of our famous um, townspeople and students was William Faulkner, the great novelist. And they have a huge quotation from him on the wall as you go up the stairs in the library from his Nobel Prize winning speech. And he said at the end of that, I have confidence that man will not only endure, but prevail. And that's the way people think, but it's exactly the opposite when you read the Psalms. Man in his pomp, yet without understandings, will not endure. He certainly will not prevail. He'll perish. And that's man in general. Man is described in these verses as pompous. That doesn't mean that man walks around with a crown on his head and a cape on his back and and has everybody taking pictures of him and wants the paparazzi to follow him. That can be true of some people. But it's not the only way that man is pompous. And he explains to us in this psalm how indeed we are pompous, how we are arrogant, how we are full of ourselves. Verse 11, he tells us that we fancy ourselves as immortal. Isn't that what he said in verse 11a? The inner thought, their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. And then he said in verse 9, he warned us, don't think you're going to live forever. Don't think people are going to remember you forever. We think we're immortal, at least for now. In other words, we think, well, surely it's not going to be me. I'm not going to be the one that's going to be in the car crash. I'm not going to be the one who's going to get cancer and die. People think they're immortal. Some of us less, some of us more. But we all live as though we're going to live forever at different times in our lives. We forget about eternity. And that's pomp, he says. He also says we fancy ourselves not only as immortal, but we fancy ourselves as important. Verse 11b. They think their dwelling places are to all generations, and they call their lands after their own names. You don't have to look at a a map very long to see that lots of towns are named after people's names. Brownsville and so on. And that's an attempt, in, in our, at least in our, our, our names, to live on forever. And the reason why we do that, and the reason why people do that, is because they think themselves far more important than they really are. You say, well, I don't have any lands, and I don't name my lands after myself, so this doesn't include me. Well, you may just do it in different ways. I think with you, again, about a funeral. You ever sit at a funeral? And I know some of you do. And they're talking really good about the person whoever the person is, and everyone's saying how wonderful they were, and you think to yourself, boy, when I die, I hope they're going to talk so good about me. As though that were really the, the point of your life, right? Is to get people to remember what a great gal or guy you were. Or you think to yourself, boy, when I retire this office, I don't know what they're going to do without me. Or this church, when I die, the tithe I give, the money I put in, the time I put in, I don't... They're going to have a hard time replacing me. All of us think those kinds of thoughts. Maybe not those specific ones, but all of us think these kinds of thoughts. We think highly of ourselves. We think we're important. And then in verses 12 and 20, he tells us that we fancy ourselves better than other people. 
better than other people. It's our pomp. It's our look at me. That's, that's really what pomp is. And we all do that. Again, we may not parade around in fancy clothes, but we think often far too highly of ourselves, and it's not confined to the rich. You ever say to yourself, why are these chuckleheads making me wait? Me, wait. Or, doesn't she know this is my yard that she's letting her dog do his business in? Why doesn't anyone around here value my feelings? And worse, we fancy ourselves wiser than God. Anytime we sin, that's what we're doing. I know God says X, but I really think Y would work out quite well in this situation. I think Y would be permissible here. I think Y would actually be more fun than what God says. We fancy ourselves important. We fancy ourselves immortal. We fancy ourselves better than other people. We fancy ourselves wiser than God. Maybe not every moment of every day are you doing all four things, but those things are true of you and they are true of me. We live as though we were the most important very often and more important than God. And that's what makes us sin. And so I ask you, do you really want to die with all those kinds of things on your record? Maybe not on your public record. You may not say it out loud. What are they going to do when I retire? But God knows, and he's got it in his book. All of our words are written in his book, the psalmist says elsewhere. He knows what you thought. He knows what you've said. He knows what you say even when you don't say it. We saw that in Luke a few weeks ago. Do you really want to die with all that you've ever thought and all that you've ever said and done on your record? Surely not. And so you have a need for good news. You have a need for the gospel. You have a need to be reminded that there is a way of redemption, verse 15. That God does love sinners and has sent His Son to die the death that we sinners deserve so that we can say with the psalmist, God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. We need good news and we have good news. That's our need of the gospel. Fourthly and finally, I want you to notice the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel in verses 13 through 15, in verse 15 particularly. The good news of Jesus crucified for our sins. The power of the gospel we're going to see in this psalm and have seen in this psalm. The power of the gospel is not mainly about your best life now. Although following Jesus is far better than all the other ways that we tend to live. But the power of the gospel is not about your best life now. The wealthy and arrogant already have that, don't they? They already have that in this song. That's not the power of the gospel. Nor is the power of the gospel gaining new purpose and attitude. Although that will surely happen when you come to Jesus. But the wealthy and the arrogant want purpose. They want attitude. They're not opposed to that message. I want my life to mean something. I want people to remember me. I want to name my lands after myself so that people will say, wow, he was an amazing guy. He was a great guy. That's not the power of the gospel. Because even people who are unconverted want purpose and new attitude. The power of the gospel, neither is it making the world a better place. Although that's a wonderful side effect of changed lives. The world does become a better place when people are changed by Jesus. 
But that's not the power of the gospel. In fact, the wealthy thinks that he can make that happen with his money. All of these things, your best life now, purpose, attitude, making the world a better place, none of those is the power of the gospel. All of those things are within the grasp of a mere man who has a lot of money or talent or leadership skills. But there is one thing that neither rich nor poor can buy. There's one thing that neither talented or untalented can buy. There's one thing that neither leader nor follower can buy. And we saw it in verse 7. It's heaven. Only God, verse 15, can redeem our souls. God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. He will. The power of the gospel is that God redeems our souls. And He redeems our souls not mainly from poverty or purposelessness or cancer or so on. Sometimes He does redeem our lives from those things, but that's not the Gospel message. The Gospel message, the power of the Gospel, is that God redeems our souls from Sheol, from the grave, from hell. The power of the Gospel, though it produces all sorts of wonderful effects here and now, is first and foremost about there and then. It's about everlasting life. It's about saving souls from hell and bringing souls to God in heaven. So don't be duped by Gospels which are mainly about the here and now. Don't be fooled by that, whether it comes from television or books or the radio or this pulpit. The Gospel is about redeeming my soul, verse 15, from the power of Sheol. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If we say what the gospel is all about is solving the AIDS problem, the world looks at us and says, what a bunch of dumb people. They go to church every week and sit there and read their Bible so that they can fix AIDS. Don't they just know that if we would just put more money into research, we'd have that. We don't need all this Bible stuff. We've got the money in our pockets. We've got the researchers. Just do it. They look at us and they laugh and they say they have all this religion to prop them up and make their lives easier. And that's because some of us do have all this religion to prop us up and make our lives easier. But if we have hope in Christ in this life only then we are of all men most to be pitied. The power of the gospel is not about this life only. So let me ask you in closing, do you have hope in this life only? Now I realize that what I've shared today, everything I've shared has been elementary. You're going to die, you all know that. You're going to go somewhere when you die, you all know that. You deserve to be judged for your sins when you die, and so do I, you all know that. Jesus has taken the punishment that you deserve. You all know that. And because Jesus has taken the punishment you deserve, whoever will call on the Lord will be saved. Whoever will call on the Lord will be with Him in paradise. You all know that. So I realize that what I've said today has been perhaps the most elementary of presentations. But I'm not ashamed to say it again because this simple message is indeed the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Paul says in Romans 1. It's the power of God to everyone who will repent of sin, to everyone who will turn 
and trust Jesus alone as Savior. And I'm not ashamed to be so simplistic this morning either because someone here this morning may have needed just this simple message. Maybe some of you children. Children, you need to realize that your sins already make you guilty before God. And that someday, children, you, as young as you are, are going to die. And you're going to go somewhere when you die. And you need to ask yourself, am I going to go and be with Jesus when I die? Or will I be left in my sins? And perhaps there's someone here who's a regular attender, someone here who's a member of the church, and you've heard all this before hundreds of times, and yet perhaps some of you are still deep inside your heart relying upon your religious merit badges to salve your conscience and make you feel like everything will be fine when you die. But you must remember this morning, verse 8, that the redemption of a soul is costly. And it could be that someone here this morning simply needed these simple reminders again so that you will today stop relying on yourself and on your attendance and on your tithe and on your service and realize that all those things are good, but none of those things are enough. The redemption of a soul is costly and you need Jesus. So anyone, anyone at all this morning, if you would turn from your sins and turn wholeheartedly to Jesus, you would experience this very day the power of the gospel.